Hi, and welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. Today's episode features a conversation between poet Adrian Sue and Professor Lee Brewer-Jones from Georgia State University Perimeter College. I'd like to welcome you home, Adrienne. For those audience who don't know this, she is a native of the Atlanta area and grew up, she says, in the volume Peach State. She grew up near North Lake Mall, occasionally Stone Mountain, and always Buford Highway, somewhere in the nearby geography. So again, welcome back. What are some particular memories of those places that you really wanted people to understand as we look through your poetry? Memories. I think it's funny how over time, as you write over the years, you find that certain things stick. And something that has always been on my mind since my first book was suburbia, or just this feeling that suburbia is more interesting than it appears. So I think some of the memories that you're asking about may be very common ones of just being a kid, going to school, wandering around the neighborhood with your friends. But then as I wrote Peach State, I think I really wanted to integrate the Chinese restaurants that I hadn't known for a long time to be a subject. That was just life. Well, you talk a lot about the ingredients that go into a restaurant and that go into the food, both in a restaurant and at home. And the first poem in the volume is one called Substitutions. What are some substitutions, that some cheats you might want to share? And on a more personal nature, what are some of the substitutions that you felt you had to make as someone of an Asian background growing up in a place where the Asian heritage is not quite as strong like Georgia? Oh, this is great. So kind of a cooking question as well as maybe a kind of life history question. Well, that's kind of what the volume is, I think. It is. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you for reading so closely. Well, one of the substitutions, which is mentioned in the poem, wait, actually, isn't I'm trying to remember now. Should I just read the poem first and then? I'd be delighted. I'd hoped you'd say that. Okay. Oh, so the, the poem, it's the opening poem to the book, and its name is Substitutions. Balsamic. For Junjong Vinegar, letters for the family gathered, a Cuisinart for many hands, petty burglars for warring bands, a baby's room for tight quarters, passing cars for neighbors, lawnmower buzzing for bicycle bells, cod fillets for cart head to tail, children who overhear the language for children who speak the language. Virginia ham, Virginia ham, and nothing for the noodle man, calling as he bears his pole down alley and street, its baskets full of pickled mustard, scallions, spice, minced pork, and a stove he lights where the customer happens to be. The balance of hot, sour, salty, sweet, which decades later, you still crave a formula you'll take to the grave. I think the substitution that came to mind when you asked the question is not in this poem, but it is in another poem. It's in the poem Abundance. And I think it's a pretty commonly known one among people who cook Chinese food in the U.S. 
which is that a lot of Chinese recipes call for Shaoxing wine. And a really good substitute for that is just a good old cheap sherry from anywhere. $3 bottle of sherry, it, it works just as well. And so I think that poem talks about flank steak <laughs> and uh, sort of being resourceful and the days when flank steak were the cheap, undesirable cut of meat, which it is no longer. Now it's expensive. But that was one substitution that was very familiar to me. But I think your question was also a little more layered than that or a lot more layered than that. And so substitutions as an Asian person growing up in a place where there were very few Asian people, one of the things was that I didn't know that we were making substitutions because I was born into that context. So oddly, I think it was the strangeness or the feeling of something having been substituted for something else was the sort of gradual dawning of what might actually be Chinese. I mean, there were some things that were obviously Chinese, such as the language or certain foods that were just nearly Chinese. But there were other foods that I really didn't know, whether they were Chinese or American or specifically Southern among American foods. Because it was just food. You know, when you're a child, you don't all know. You do realize that when you go over to your non-Chinese friends' houses, there are some things you don't see and vice versa. So I wish I could give a kind of nice bulleted list of substitutions, but I, I think it was a larger and very slow realization of what indeed was a substitution that I think would be my answer to that question. And I probably would have given you a very different answer back then. You know, asked that question then, I would probably take it literally and say, well, we couldn't find, and I, I didn't cook as a child or really for much of my teenage years either. So I didn't even know what substitutions were being made. <laughs> they just happened. But I think that was why I got fascinated later and delved into these cookbooks from the years of my childhood to find out what Chinese Americans were cooking in places like Atlanta, where you couldn't get all the supplies as you could in San Francisco. Of course, the, the book being called Peach State is a double play off the traditional name for Georgia and also about the fact that it is a book so much infused with food and beverage. But also you talk a lot about your Asian heritage. And I was wondering if you don't resist labels, if you would think of yourself more as a Southern poet who happens to be Asian American or an Asian American poet who happens to be from the South or something different from either of those. I think it kind of depends on... What book I'm thinking about, because I think my first book had a lot about Asian American identity in it, but then the second book, not so much, the third, not so much, and also Southern identity didn't figure so much, I think, in my second book, Sanctuary, my third book, Having None of It, and my fourth book, Living Quarters, they all 
didn't wrestle very much with southernness but i would say asian american identity was always present but not always being written about so i think it kind of depends i mean i think in peach state i feel very much like an asian american poet of the new south if that's an acceptable answer right just to say that being an asian american from atlanta now is not unusual and yet the book dwells on a time when it was so i guess i'm a poet whose emphasis changes depending on what i'm thinking and writing about i would say that's a fairly typical experience that people have as we gain maturity and perspective and you talked about, I noticed when you were reading substitutions, you talked about taking a formula to the grave. And you also talked about uh, a, a balance between or among hot, sour, salty, and sweet. Some of the hot, sour, salty, and sweet things that you've clung to that maybe you're not going to take to the grave, but that you might be willing to share with us tonight. <laughs> great. That's such a great question. Maybe I'll, I'll take each of those flavors one at a time and see what occurs to me. I just love that question. Hot? What's funny is that I grew up pretty much without spicy food in the home because both of my parents grew up in regions of China where the food is more really, I think, sweet than hot. And there was usually, in a lot of restaurants, Chinese restaurants, especially the later ones that were having a larger Chinese clientele, you get a little saucer of chili oil. And I was always warned about it. <laughs> it's so somehow hot didn't figure, but, but I love spicy food and it has, I'm not sure. I think it just became part of my life as my world got bigger, you know, as I went to different places and I was always curious about unfamiliar foods. So hot, at least in terms of spice, was an acquisition. And then sour, I think of those Chinese dried plums that are wrapped in several layers usually. I think there's a cellophane layer around the actual dried plum and then paper layer. And then there's an outer wrapper. It was just my memory of it. It's been a long time since I've had one, actually. But they're super sour. And you really have to just sort of nibble it bit by bit. And it's really great with a cup of tea. Somehow we had those when I was a child, even though there weren't really that many Asian groceries available. I think it's because they're preserved. So if somebody gets you a bunch of them, you can hang on to them for a few years and just, you know, eat one when you feel like it. They're already dried. They will dry more. You can't keep them forever. But I think that's the first thing that comes to mind with sour. Salty makes me think about the structure of Chinese food, that you have the foundation of unseasoned rice. And then you put something on the rice that is generally pretty high in salt. And of course, you adjust it to your taste in terms of how much rice you eat with it. So people who really love salt will use less rice 
with each bite of the dish, which is, there's not, I don't think there's an English word for it. Sai, the thing you put on the rice, sai. And so if, and that's why in a Chinese banquet, sometimes there is no rice served at all. It's to show generosity. We are not going to fill you up with rice. We're just going to give you Thai with the things to put on rice. It's going to be vegetables and meat and fish and tofu and all that good stuff that goes on the rice. Actually, it's me quite difficult to eat a Chinese banquet meal because I kind of need some rice. And sometimes there is a little bowl of rice served at the end as a sort of symbol. But I think really about how heavily salted some Chinese food is because it is meant to be eaten with something that's unseasoned. And then we, I think one of the most fun things about working on this book was trying to figure out what to say about Chinese desserts because Chinese food doesn't really have that line between savory and sweet that I think we have in the food tradition that is very France-centered. We have these glorious Western desserts because you don't have a lot of sugar in the actual meal, whereas in many cuisines, including Chinese, there's often sweet mixed in with the meal, though you're not craving it at the end. And you might just be served oranges for dessert. So I think with sweet, I think about sweet being integrated into the meal or separated from the meal. And of course, I grew up with both the Western and the Chinese food traditions. So I'm quite happy to eat cake too. <laughs> yeah, like it. So, um, yeah. The, it was interesting just now to think about those four taste areas. Thanks. Well, your answer when you were speaking about sweets it reminded me of the poem you talk about the three generations at Krispy Kreme. Oh, it's yeah. Very Southern, but you gave a respectfully traditional Asian-American perspective on the importance of generations being together. Experience. Would you like to uh, elaborate on how the combination of Krispy Kreme and the Chinese family operate for you in that poem or elsewhere. Yeah, why don't I read that poem? When we walk into Krispy Kreme, we're three generations, same as when I was a child. Only now, I'm a parent. My brother's in town as well, eager for the airy snack he recalls from when the paper hats were caused for glee. My daughters are the age we were then, so it matters that they learn this part of their heritage. There's only Duncan where we live. My father tells the young cashier that in his day, a donut here cost a nickel, and in that instant, transforms into a foreign student in midtown Atlanta in the 50s, cut off from family, saved by study abroad, fortunate and unfortunate, receptive to barbecue, donuts, coffee, Highways, football. While hunger underlay it all for the simplest elements, steamed bread, tofu, fermented black beans, he embraced the city whose liveness and humidity mirrored home. He liked the optimism of those around him who seemed not to have eaten bitter, as the idiom goes, even though some of them had. America eats too much sugar 
but that in its way made life fuller despite the complexities. We order more than we need because we're together, family of origin and next generation. The cashier smiles. It's in his job description, but he looks sincere. This is the culture that created us. Hospitality, respect for elders. So your question was about an Asian American perspective on Krispy Kreme, right? For me, what was happening toward the end of writing this poem was that Southern culture and Chinese culture were merging. That I felt that there in Southern culture is also a respect for elders and of course hospitality, right? The, just kind of seems like it's always attached to southernness, and so I think food is so central to Chinese hospitality that it seemed. And I wasn't planning this. You know, of course, I was, as I write a poem, I'm just kind of figuring out what, what words are the ones I want to use to understand this encounter. But I think hospitality is so often pinned to southernness and respect for elders is so often pinned to chineseness but i felt that in that scene the cashier is being respectful to the elderly customer who tells him how much less a donut cost you know back in what 1953 or something <laughs> i actually don't know what year Krispy cream was founded also that my daughter was there before so it's been cream i don't know no, I actually know the answer to that question. Oh, really? About 1930 in Charlotte, North Carolina. We think of it as an Atlanta institution, uh -huh. North Carolinian. Okay, so then my father did not get there ahead of <laughs> That's That's right. So, so it was well established when he arrived. Okay, <laughs> I love that because in writing this book, I was trying to imagine my parents' lives before me, right? Or before I was aware. <laughs> so... I was fascinated by things like this. Like, what was there? What was in Atlanta when they first got there as foreign students? And I love knowing from you that Krispy Kreme was already there, right? And so That's my right. dad really was an old timer because this young cashier, he is maybe, we don't know because, you know, it's just encountering a stranger, but maybe he doesn't know the history of the place where he works or the history of the neighborhood where this Krispy Kreme airs. So for me, it was, I think, the moment where my dad says, donut here used to cost a nickel. And that just sends my imagination into a whole other world because a nickel, all right, well, how far back was that? And what else was different? And what was your life like, Dad? <laughs> so all of that starts to stand. And I think it also, as far as the, an Asian American or a Chinese American perspective, I started to think about the Chinese idiom to eat bitter, which is the, the expression of to suffer. And the fact that we're basically in a sugar paradise in this poem and yet there's been so much bitterness in the American South in the past that to me there was something going on between bitter and sweet and at the same time so many things like we're going into this moment 
for me, including you know, the different tastes and the sense histories colliding. Like I talk too long. If you ask me, that's why I have to write a poem where I cut out a lot of the extra words. <laughs> but thanks for that question. Something I'd love to hear, if you're willing to do it, is I'd love to hear Beaufort Highway, and I'm sure our audience would as well. And then I'd like to ask you a couple of things about Beaufort Highway. And what I'll go ahead and ask now in particular, I'm kind of anticipating what you say in the poem, but you talk about home being a highway, not a driveway. So I was going to ask if you feel like a highway really can be home. Is that the role that the highway is capable of taking on? But anyway, answer that question, if you'd be willing to, I'd love to hear you read Beaufort Highway for us. Okay, we'll do that. So, Beaufort Highway. And Beaufort Highway has an epigraph from a poem written by Langston Hughes on Richard Wright, Red Clay Blues. So first I will read their lines and then I'll read my poem. I miss that red clay, Lord, I need to feel it in my shoes. Zads, miss that red clay, Lord, I need to feel it in my shoes. I want to get to Georgia because I got them red clay blues. Buford Highway. Before it was declared a food destination, it was my family's private destination. Most weekends we gathered there, three generations. The stainless pot of chrysanthemum tea would always be replenished, same as iced tea. We savored a thousand treasures of land and sea. When my grandfather died, I was living up north. When my grandmother died, I was living up north. I resolved that no one else would die going forth. When my parents grew tired of amending red clay, they sold the house they loved and its yard of red clay. While it doesn't take a house to remember those days, it's strange to go back and pull into no driveway. What conjures our home is a seven-lane highway. So your question was about a highway of home. And maybe the first thing I'll say is that the poem you probably heard and you already know because you read the book that the first rhyme in every tercet and you can't obviously listen to the poem, you can't hear the stanza breaks, but it's written in the tradition of the blues sonnet. So you rhyme a word with itself and then you rhyme a word with that word for each of the stanzas until you end on a couplet. So I think the feeling of a sort of wanting to talk to the blues tradition is I think grounded in this poem being one of law. And I, I do think Peach State is motivated by an impending sense of loss, even though it's kind of a celebratory book. I think funerals are often celebrations of a person's life, right? And so it's both loss and celebration. So one of the straightforward things I can say about how this poem is built is that I was thinking about the fact that my childhood home is gone. I think this happens to a lot of people, especially Americans, because we move around so much. You don't necessarily inherit the house you grew up in. You might have moved across the country or just across town for whatever reason. 
So at this point, when I'm putting the poem together, I'm feeling like the house gone, you know, because the house has been sold and my parents have moved into a retirement community. So we don't have a driveway anymore. It's more like a campus. Uh, but we always go to eat on Beaufort Highway. And that's something we did back when we lived in the house as well. So Beaufort Highway becomes the place where we feel like you've come home. Not just because of the food, but because of the people you eat with. Although the three generations become a different three generations with my grandparents gone, but my children now there. But of course, the other thing that the whole book anticipates is you know, the next round, right? When I'm the oldest generation, I don't have grandchildren, but it's just the inevitable, right? And so the sense of time taking everything away from us and poetry being that fight against time or the feverish of time. So the highway becomes the constant. And maybe I just wanted also to celebrate the highway in some way. And it's good. You mentioned Buford Highway having seven lanes, having had two lanes, going to have who knows how many lanes one day. How do you feel about the inevitability of change and about what is lost and about what is retained? You mentioned poetry's function in holding on to things. Can we gain things that are new? And can poetry play a role in that and in creating our own Buford Highways, if you will? Yeah. I don't even know if Buford Highway, this is funny. When I was putting this poem together, I was trying to figure out how many lanes Buford Highway had. (laughs) I think I used Google Earth or something and I just kind of was looking at it and counting. And I actually don't know if you're supposed to count the turn lane. Does that count? I don't know. (laughs) Well, and it it may be gone tomorrow. So who? Right. So I feel that poetry, when it's doing what it should and many poems don't work i mean i feel that i am always writing doing the best i can but i often feel like oh i tried and it didn't work but i think when a poem works it gives the illusion of time having been stopped and i've been to enough memorials of poets that I have felt that chill when the poet who has died is being remembered and various people who either knew the poet or just loved the work read some of the poem. To me, we step out of time. We're no longer concerned with that individual person's birth and death. We get a little taste of eternity, I think, because that person got the right words in the right order <laughs> so um yeah change is always going to happen the highway is going to expand or contract maybe remote work will make some of the highways contract Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> right? but i do feel like the poem when it's working or when it's the right poem for you in that moment gives you a little break from what dealing with everything constantly changes I don't know if you'll want to read to us, even when you die and go to heaven, you have to change planes in Atlanta. I'd love it, of course, if you did. But even if you don't, I wanted to point out that, you know, it's a great line. And I suspect it's more true than we realize. But you work with form a lot in that poem. I noticed that you find subtle ways 
a weaving form into your poems and then sometimes writing in what seems to be not necessarily a prescribed form, but then coming back to it at other times, you know, and as I said, in, in a seamless sort of way. Regarding the content of that poem, though, you keep coming back to the image of Atlanta being heaven if it's your final destination. As someone who's been away for decades, does the Atlanta area feel like a sort of heaven to you? Or does that feel like just a nostalgic notion or something else? It's a great question. And I'd love to read this poem and then address the question. So, as I think you've already said, the title is, Even When You Die and Go to Heaven, You Have to Change Planes in Atlanta. If your final destination is the ATL, welcome home. You're already in heaven. If you're bound for Huntsville, Valdosta, or Charleston, it'll take a bit longer from room thickened or fell. Stop by for an ultimate supper at the Varsity Grill. Haunt the plane train. Ride in Hartsfield, Jackson. Even if your final destination is the ATL. Welcome home. You are ready in heaven. Your card will not be charged for this airport hotel. We have unlimited flight should you miss your connection. If by mistake you packed liquids or weapons, set them aside, we'll divert them to hell. And if your final destination is the ATL, welcome home. You're already in heaven. This poem is in a received form, but I've forgotten which form it is. I don't know. You know. <laughs> I believe it's a villanelle. I'm not. The repeating, the three repeating, I'd have to look that up. It's not a villanelle, but it's in that family, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't remember which one. It's not a form I use a lot. Um, right. But I guess that tells you something, too, about process. Like I use a form because it helps me get the words right. But then I don't really care what it's called. Right? <laughs> like, if it worked, then, I mean, I hope it worked. Uh, but you asked a great question about Atlanta as heaven. And this is one reason you also asked about poetic forms. And this is one reason I love to write in forms because I can say, well, the form forced me to say heaven this many times because it required me to repeat these lines. And I think whenever you invoke heaven, I mean, hell isn't that far away. When I was writing this poem, I wondered if there's a version of the saying where they say hell instead of heaven. I think there was a real kind of existential anxiety going into this, even though the poem is, you know, kind of making jokes, like airport jokes. And what does make Atlanta sort of heavenly for me is that most of my time there is time with family away from mundane repetitions of maintaining a house and making a living. I mostly go there to see people I enjoy and eat great food. Uh, when my kids were little, go to the aquarium. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a little paradise. But I think my other view of heaven is that one thing I think about a lot or thought about a lot while writing Peach State was that if you grow up in a place and then you leave, then your memory of that place is your memory of being a child there. So that place is then sort of 
characterized by what your childhood was like. So I felt very safe and secure as a child. And I think, what if I had lived my adult life there and just had to fend for myself as just an ordinary person as I have there in, in other places? It probably wouldn't feel so heavenly. It would feel more realistic. <laughs> Part of the motivation for writing the whole book is really my own suspicion of nostalgia. And I feel that that's an American worry. It's probably a worry everywhere that people think that the good old days were better than they were. Or if people are feeling resistant to change, then the past looks less complicated maybe than it was. So maybe that's why I wanted to get that line in about diverting your liquids or weapons to hell that you don't have a heaven without a hell, right? So there has to be, well, I guess you could. You could have heaven and earth. Isn't that much the Chinese view? Like there's heaven and there's earth. There's not really hell. Right? That, I mean, you don't have to have it. And I think there are many religion, there are many traditions in which hell isn't a thing. But the idea of paradise here is, I hope, complicated by a kind of bureaucratic voice. The voice of the intercom when you're in the airport, the Atlanta airport, and you hear that robotic voice on the train or you hear all these announcements. Inevitably, you get to your gate and find out that your flight has been moved to another gate in a different terminal <laughs> to get back on the train. So I, I didn't want heaven to seem too idyllic. It also happens that your flight is so delayed or is so late coming in that you miss your next flight and have to go to the hotel where your credit card is not charged, as you said in the board. And I couldn't help but ask, does that come from a place of experience or from someone else's experience that you are sharing with us? Well, being a person who's generally had a home base in Atlanta and not had to change planes there that much, except when I happened to change planes there on my way between two other cities. I haven't had to do that airport hotel in Atlanta, but I was thinking more about the sort of sinister aspect of dying and heading to your ultimate destination, but having this layover, right? Where, yes, your first flight was delayed so much and you have to stay in this hotel. And of course, you're not going to be charged because you're no longer in that world you knew. So I wanted it to be a little darker than the actual experience of the airline paying for your hotel because <laughs> they made you miss your connection. That's right. But well, you, you also mentioned wondering if there's a version of the saying that when you die, if you go to hell, you'll have to change planes. And I think that it's Ann Tyler in The Accidental Tourist who uses that version of the line. I'll have to be double checked on that, but I was thinking about that while you were speaking. I know that I have heard it, and I think that's the source. Ann Tyler, the accidental tourist. I'm almost certain it's an anti-tyrism, whether it comes from accidental tourist or not. You talk in the poem Abundance, which you were talking about just a few minutes ago, the, the poem for the audience that deals with flank steak at a time when it was inexpensive, and you talk about it as nutrition for hungry students. My question 
has to do with any nourishment or anything that you might want to feed to hungry students, any nourishment you might want to offer for someone who wants to learn how to be a better poet and how to write more effectively. Now, I know you devote entire semesters and even years to teaching students that, but is there anything that might come from an elevator type conversation that you'd be willing to share with our audience tonight? The thing I'm always urging people to do, and I'm glad that I have to do this because it's very easy to call and edit yourself or to get out of practice, is to turn off your inner editor for a while. I think we get so critical of ourselves and edit as we write just because we can see what's wrong with that first draft even before it's finished. I think the important thing is to try to regain or maintain a small play. And let yourself write whatever you're going to write. Don't worry how it's going to turn out. And then come back to it with your editorial brain on. Do you turn the editorial brain on with the second draft or you go through multiple drafts before engaging that part of your mind? Great question, too. I think it depends on how unformed that first draft is. And usually it's quite unformed. So then I try also to withhold judgment somewhat for the second draft. I think it starts to kick in already because you can already see things you want to change. But if that first draft is really unsure of what it wants to do, then I don't want to impose too much on the second draft because I might be getting it wrong. But I'd say by the third, I can start pushing it around a bit or I give up. Right. It might be, okay, I just don't know what to do with this. I think it wasn't going anywhere. When you give up, do you discard or do you put it aside for the moment and possibly come back to it later? I still put it aside. So I guess it's not actually giving up. It's a kind of postponement, but possibly indefinite postponement. Uh, right. Yeah. When we start the process, do you tend to start with pen or pencil or do you tend to start at the keyboard pen usually but pencil if there's not a pen available <laughs> sure yeah i do like to start with that tactile experience of writing on paper tactile you specifically like to feel the relationship between your mind and the words as they flow out of you in a way that yeah. you perhaps can't feel on a keyboard it's very different yeah, I think because it's slower than the keyboard, I consider the word a little bit longer, word by word. Because you have to, right? Right. It just turns out differently. At what point, if any, do you go to the keyboard with a poem? Uh, pretty soon. I'd say after the maybe first two drafts, possibly. I mean, if, if I feel like it can get an order. Then when it starts to feel like a poem, is that a... Yeah, well, it starts to feel like a potential poem. Okay, okay. First question has come in, I'd like to read from the audience, and that is, who is your favorite contemporary poet at the moment? And along with that, what do you think is the role of contemporary poetry and culture today? Let's see. Who's like, okay, I never have a favorite poet. <laughs> But I can, let's see, and I always blank on what I've just read, but there were some really terrific poets I 
recently had visit my classes over them. So I'll just name a few contemporary poets I think are fantastic. Rick Barrett is one. Victoria Chang. Louise Glick. You can't miss Louise Glick right after the Nobel <laughs> Prize. But I've always found her work really haunting. And even though I work in rhyme and she works in free verse, I just have always felt an affinity with her poems. Oh, Sandra Beasley, Made to Upload, which came out last year. And I also had Shara McCallum visit my class over Zoom. Her newest book is really a novel and verse, Imagining Robert Burns, if his life had gone differently. That's a few. And then let's see, the other part of the question was... The other part of the question had to do with how you see the role of contemporary poetry today. Okay, yeah, right. I think it is to say the truth as the poet understands it and then try to get it to stick around. <laughs> right. I mean, I think in times of crisis, we do as a society often turn to poems. I think after 9-11, there was a surge of interest in poems that were not written in the wake of 9-11, but after World War II or like a poem addresses a human truth or a human experience in a larger sense, it'll be about a specific one, but it's going to work for another crisis. So I think it is to attempt to capture something true about being alive that people will be able to connect to in any, in a different circumstance. And I think most contemporary poetry gets very little attention, but its job isn't to get attention now necessarily. To me, that sounds a bit Keatsian. Are you influenced by Keats? Not as much as, I mean, only because of my own failure. But I mentioned Rick Barrett a minute ago, and I, I love the way Rick Barrett uses Keats. But I do wonder, I, I don't know if I'm saying that beauty is truth, right? <laughs> or if truth is beauty. While we wait for another question to come in from the audience, I wanted to ask, pertaining to the question about contemporary poets, who are some of the poets from the past who have inspired you? Well, okay. So I'm seeing this wonderful remark in the Q&A box from an old classmate who was in my Latin class at Lakeside. And the reason I bring that up now is that I, I kind of had my introduction to meter and rhyme through Latin. So really the first poet I really engaged with, or really poet i was virgil i got my education in meter from the classics as in classical antiquity i don't know that i did it that well because we didn't really have upper level latin i just sort of sat in the back of second year latin and did my best to translate but i felt that i got absorbed in that and i also see the question that is popped up about art, and you mentioned very quickly something about artwork. Anything you care to add to that comment? I have, I've realized 
after teaching Natasha Trethewey's work and having her visit my class over Zoom, that I really like other people's acrostic poems, but I almost never write one myself, and I don't know why. I use the college art gallery a lot for my students, and they really respond to writing poems that engage with works of art. But I'm not sure that I have really done it. And I actually think that that is, I take that question almost as like a useful suggestion, right? Because after reading a lot of Strathway's poems that respond to art, I just thought, I need to do this more. I admire other people doing it. I encourage other people to do it. But maybe I'm just the teacher too much at the time. I kind of need to be a student and do that more because I think it does bring other things out. If you don't mind my asking, what are you working on now? And when do you see your next book being finished if it's not already, in fact, finished? I know people have to work ahead of the publisher's timelines. Yeah, well, I'm not that fast. I'm trying to work on something to do with the theme of memory and memory loss and sort of that line between imagination and memory. I know that that shares some territory with Peach State. So for one reason, I don't, I'm not that close. So I don't know when I will have the next book is that I'm trying really hard not to repeat myself. So I got so caught up in writing Peach State that it became a world that I could enter. I got really comfortable there. And I could still be working on it, you know, if I didn't have to at some point declare it. <laughs> I just felt so at ease, but also alive in that imaginative space that what I've been doing is trying to get out of it because I don't want to do the same thing. I always have periods of silence after finishing a book. And so I say that since no longer making any corrections to the state manuscript, I've written more essays and poems here and there, but they don't cohere yet. Well, I'm sure they will. I'll admit I should have been introduced to your work earlier because I subscribed to the New Yorker. And so I should have seen. And I encourage everybody in the audience to go and have a look at after an hour, you're hungry again, because it's wonderful. Uh, it made me hungry. I want to read the next volume that comes along. Thank you again for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library about authors, their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. And thanks again to Adrian Sue and Professor Lee Brewer-Jones for the great conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. Connect, learn, and grow with your Gwinnett County Public Library.